The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Beautiful picture, beautiful pictures we've been singing about this morning, about you, about how good you have been to us, and the beauties that are you, and how you have revealed yourself to us sovereignly, so graciously, so mercifully, so generously, and what a, what a picture what a picture, what a thing it would be for the nations to be glad in you as we have come to be glad in you and that you might, you might use us in that, you might use us. What pleasure that would be, what a wonderful thing that would be. And we gotta go to work tomorrow morning and we're going to wake up and change diapers tomorrow morning. And we're going to go to school tomorrow or soon. And we're going to wake up and maybe wonder, what, what should I be doing tomorrow? There's a disconnect there. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And we long to be used for that. We, we long to see it with our own eyes. And um, how does that work? How does that work? We pray that you would make that clearer for us today. Pray that you would make that clearer and that you would give us what we need. Please give us the bread that we need that your name really would be hallowed more in the world that your kingdom really would be enlarged, that your will really would be done more in the world through us. So please feed us from your word. Cause your word to truly be the bread of life to each of us where we are at right now. Do it in me, do it in us. As Frank prayed earlier, please, please forgive us of our sins. And I pray that even, even right now, as we sit here, that you would do some spiritual work in us that would, that would wipe the mud off the windshield, that would, that would wipe the mud off and cause us to see more clearly you to see more clearly what it means to, to run hard after you, to lean hard after you and lean hard on you and to be fruitful in you. So please, please lead out here. Please lead us now as I speak, but, but as I speak, please speak, please speak. 
Give us grace. Please fill us with your spirit to hear, to hear what you have to say to us. We need you. All these songs, they cry out how good you are and they cry out how much we need you. So please, bread of life, feed us now by your spirit, by your word, we pray. Amen. So I invite you to look with me at 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. 1 Peter, chapter 2. We will be looking most closely at verses 9 through 12 this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. If you have one of those white Bibles from the hallway, I think it's on page 588 in that Bible. By the way, I'll be traveling to school after church today, so I won't be available at, at the door. Um, but uh, you, can, uh, you can pray for me. I'll be going to Philadelphia uh, for school um, related to ministry and counseling. So you can pray that that will be a fruitful, useful time for our church, for the church. And you can pray for my family, too, while I'm gone. <clears throat> Let me read First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. We Christians, Peter says, are a royal priesthood. We've considered this in previous weeks where, where this comes from in Exodus, how we are Israel. We are God's people by union in the Israel, the one Israel, Jesus. Our salvation, our union with Christ, however, is not primarily about us. It is to proclaim his excellencies. But it is about us having, having eternal spiritual offspring, people who also become un united with him, that would be what would satisfy us more than anything else. Because that's what satisfied Jesus more than anything else, to bear us, to die for us. So the context for our proclaiming him is vocation. God gives each of us vocations, a job, a role, a place in life, a place in the world to do good to the world. And as I trust we will see today, it is only when we pursue our vocation in Christ that we actually fulfill that vocation. We must recover these doctrines of the, of the priesthood and of vocation. So much of our lives is lived pursuing our vocations, our jobs, our roles, what we do in our life. And yet, so many of us, so many Christians live so many years never bringing the two together, never bringing their vocation underneath their Christianity. They never overlay. We often want to, but we don't know how to. We're often confused. 
and we struggle to understand what our vocation means, how it fits into God's plan and God's work in the world. So we just go with the flow and try to be good, but struggle the whole way to really bear fruit. Now, Peter is writing to people who really could understand this confusion. He's writing to exiles, literally and figuratively, literally and spiritually. People dispersed by persecution over a large swath of Central Europe and Asia. People that maybe some of them had actually been run out of their homes by a pre-Christian Paul. And now, in their foreign land, what now? Got to make a living. Got to support my family. Got to go about my daily business. Heaven has not come yet. Jesus has not returned. So how do I live? What is the meaning of what I'm going to do tomorrow? How do I live right now? So Peter, Peter's going to give us clear direction on this question. He's going to draw a map for us to follow that if we would, it would, it would change us. We would certainly see differences out there. And if, if, he, if, if we would follow Peter's map as a priesthood together, I, I, I am very confident that by the Spirit, by God, we would see fruit out there. But this is, this is a map that we are all meant to follow together as a priesthood. So Peter lays out for us the path that we must follow if we're to fruitfully, spiritually, satisfyingly follow Christ in the world. Two points, two points this morning, and they are really, really, put it this simply, how faith and hope produce real love through us in the world. How faith and hope produce real love, fruitful love through us in the world. First point is this. Your vocation is given to you by God. Your vocation is given to you by God to bring good to the world. To bring good to the world to you and through, excuse me, and to you through faith. Your vocation is given to you by God to bring good to the world and to you through faith. Your vocation the place, the role that God has placed you in in this season of your life. It may change. It may change from one season to the next. But they are all given by God. Now I get this. I get the, the topic of vocation from this passage because what follows after verse 12. Peter is, is drawing the map and then after he draws the map he gets a little bit more specific. First in our vocation as citizens in political societies. Peter talks about how to live under emperors and dominions of emperors that govern their societies. Then he talks about work. He talks about employees and masters and how to live under uh, even brutal masters. Then he talks about family. He talks about marriage, wives, then husbands. The implication, however, in all of them is that God put us there in that place in that role for a purpose, to love others. God's general purpose with vocations is that he is being, being himself with the world. He is being generous with the world, bringing good into the world and ordering the world for good. God glorifies himself this way. He's, he's, he's showing the world his, his excellencies. He is, he is 
beaming his excellencies, his light into the world by being generous through vocations, the vocations that he gives each one of us. Now, he, he, he could do this the same way that he created everything. I mean, he, he could just speak into existence food for us and clothing and shelter and babies and stuff. He could just speak that into existence. I mean, he, he doesn't need us. He doesn't have to use us. But he created everyone on earth in his image, and he delights in his creation. Yet still, he delights in it. Therefore, it's as if he welcomes all humanity into the family business. He condescends to use us the way a farmer might condescend to let his son drive the big million-dollar GPS-directed combine in the field. He doesn't need the son to do it, but he delights to. It's, it's just child's play, really. All of our work is just child's play before the power of God. God can just speak everything. But we're his children, and he, he lets us drive the combine because he delights in us. To use Martin Luther's picture, it is as if when the baker break, makes bread or the butcher produces meat or the banker protects and creates wealth, he or she is being worn by God as God's mask. It is God pushing that particular kind of good into the world through that person, through you. When you Go about your vocation and do work. God is wearing you as his mask to push good into the world, to order the world, because he is a generous God. He put you there for that purpose. When a community has good laws or when a citizen stands up to call for new, better laws, God is wearing that city council or that citizen as his mask. When a student learns geography and is being prepared for doing good in the world, God is wearing him as his mask. When a widow sets herself to pray for the people around her, God is wearing her as his mask, doing good. Wherever you are, at your present job or role, you can know that God called you there. Now I know, a lot of questions may immediately come to your mind, but my job is temporary. This isn't really my calling. It's just a you know, spot work. For now. No, no, no. Actually, it is your calling. If you are there, then God has called you there for now. Wherever you are at, God has called you there to push particular good into the world right there. Whatever your place, whatever your role, whatever you get paid, therefore it has tremendous dignity because God called you there. God called you there, and he is ordering the world in mercy and grace, and you are a part of it. Your calling is sovereign, it is particular, and it is personal. He's not doing random. He has you there. Again, the questions, should I seek a different calling? Maybe. Uh, God will lead you and equip you if that's his will. Or I'm out of a job. I'm retired. What's that supposed to look like? Those are questions, oftentimes, for the priesthood. This priesthood exists in part to give each other wisdom and constructive feedback on such questions. That's what your community and your discipleship groups are for. But today, God has you where he wants you. 
every work of yours in your calling, every diaper, every prayer, every labor of love done in faith, done in faith, entrusting yourself to his calling is precious to him, therefore. It is precious to him because he is pushing his own himself, his own glory into the world through that particular work. Therefore, it is precious. Nothing is too small. Nothing is insignificant in his eyes. He does not forget a bit of it, one bit of it. I know this because in chapter 1, verse 7, Peter says that the tested genuineness of our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at Jesus' return. Every moment, every moment that, that you, by faith, entrusting your calling, went about your work trusting Him, that that moment of faith will be brought forward on that day somehow. I don't know what it will look like, but it will be brought forward on that day. And it will be, be brought forward to show the universe, you see, it was worth it. That, that faith that you exercised there, it was worth it. He does not forget a bit of it. It is precious to him. It is precious. So, what does labor of faith and love look like exactly? What does that look like? Um, I think the answer can be both simple and not so simple. What, what is the distinctively Christian way, for instance, to teach math? I don't know if there's any math teachers are here today or not, but uh, I wasn't thinking about you when I said that, when I thought about this, but... Um, What's the distinctively Christian way to teach math? I think it's just to teach the kids long division. In God's creation, long division is long division. <laughs> teach math. Um, what is the distinctively Christian way to do mortgage banking? What I did in the previous life. I think it just means offering competitive options and locking the rate when you said you would at the agreed rate like everybody else. Now, there are other details here. How you treat your students, what fees you charge, how much you pay your employees. I'm, I'm sure all of those are informed in some way by being a Christian. They should be different because you are a Christian. And I also know that it does not mean you steal time from your employer in order to evangelize. It does not mean that you do shoddy work because you spend all your time trying to evangelize people. It doesn't mean that either. But much of our vocation is simple. We entrust ourselves to God's calling, which then frees us to simply get to the business of doing our job well with the excellence that reflects the excellencies of God. It starts right there. But then there are other vocations where I think being a Christian directly affects maybe everything you do. If you are a person who creates some kind of original creative content, I don't know, you write plays for a living. I don't know. I don't think we have any playwrights in the congregation. But if you do, I suspect that being a Christian would bleed through everything you do, I think. But then there are other jobs where I, have no, I don't know. I'm the wrong person to ask. Um, this is where the wisdom, again, of the priesthood comes in. I, I have a friend whose job it is to Photoshop 
the big pictures that you see in a major department chain. What of his job is just entrusting himself to God and getting to the business of Photoshop and what is changed and different because he's a Christian? I, don't, I have no idea. But I, I'm pretty sure that if he, he doesn't live here, if he lived here and was part of our church, I'm pretty sure there's people in our congregation who could give him a good beat on that. That's what the priesthood is for. It's what our groups are for, to wrestle with these questions together. But regardless, God is pushing good into the world through you, and he is, he is being good to you. God gives us vocations to, to direct our energies to good ends in life. Work is good. Work came before the fall. Work has only been cursed by the fall. It's not because of the fall. One of the worst things that can befall any community is to have a large number of young men unemployed. That is the worst judgment on any community, I think, anywhere. It never goes well. So God gives us vocations to do good to us. But our father even has a, a longer-term purpose. The farmer is training his son to someday take over. And in Revelation 20, this is, this is fascinating to me. It, it, I can't wait to see what this looks like. It says that not only will we reign with Christ over the new creation, but it, but it seems to imply that God will use us to make that creation, to recreate the world. He will do that through us. He will condescend in that new age, to make it through us. He's training us now for that. Amazing. God's got long-term plans for where he has it for you, for where he has assigned you right now. It's amazing to me. So, to those of us who struggle to find meaning in our present calling, we find plenty of meaning simply by looking to God by looking up. And the same goes for those of us on the other end of the spectrum. People like me who are tempted to find all our meaning and our vocation. You got to see Peter's logical order here. He, he establishes our identity in God, in what God has done, what, what God has declared for us. Then he establishes how we are to live in light of that, and only then does he begin to talk about the specifics of being a citizen and a worker, an employee, and a member of a family. Some of us, me included, can be so prone to reverse that order. It's like a reflex. How much of our lives is spent under the exhausting, exhausting logic that if only I can master this vocation, then I will be okay? Then I will be somebody. Then I will be worth being prized by others. Then I can say to myself, I am a person who is set apart. If only my kids were of a superior beauty and performance, then I would be a mother set apart. If only I could sustain these sales numbers and become manager, then I will be of worth. But what kind of people do we then become as we pursue being justified by our vocation, through our vocation. In order to pay off what we seek, our vocations, they just demand more and more from us, more time, more perfection. As it has been said elsewhere, demanding gods make demanding people. 
people who step on others below us and kiss up to those above us. We, we look like we're givers, but we're really just mercenaries giving to get. We're really about us. And it, it, gets, it gets real ugly real fast because it's idolatry. It's idolatry. And idolatry always takes us further than we think it will. But freedom is possible. Freedom is possible by faith. By trusting in all that we have through our union with Christ, all that Christ is for us. You want to be somebody? The gospel says we were somebody. A dark somebody. We were worse than we thought. We thought we were pretty good, pretty attractive to God. The gospel revealed that we were not a people not needed by God, distant, separated from God, a foreigner to God, unknown to God. As far from God as darkness is from light. We were like sheep, just, just straying off, doing what we do, blind to God, displeasing to God, unfruitful to God. But Christian, God has been so merciful to us chose us, verse 9, from all the peoples. He chose you. He chose you. Why? Because of his grace. Because of his grace. He elevated us. He adopted us and brought us into his house, into his royal court to serve him. We're royal. Possessing the dignity of a royal. Queen Elizabeth and her family ain't got nothing on you. You, and, and you have incredible, you now, this very moment, possess incredible integrity as a person. Not because of what you have done, but because of the forgiveness lavished on you at the cross. You have perfect integrity. Integrity of the truest quality. And we are possessed by God. We are prized, valued Valued by the one whose opinion matters most. You, I say you, I'm talking to me too. Jed, you are loved and treasured far beyond what you could possibly imagine in Christ. In Christ. We are somebody, not because we are somebody. Because we have been made somebody in the magnificent light, the magnificent love of God poured out for us in Christ. I mean, you, you know this. I heard a thousand times from this pulpit. You know this, but oh my goodness. When you go to work on Monday morning, you don't know this. We so often act like we, we're so forgetful, forgetful sheep. We must keep reminding ourselves. We must keep returning to these things. You and I are holy. You already are a person set apart in Christ. In Christ, not in our vocations. Our vocation is where we live out our, vo our justification, not where we derive it. Our vocation is where we live out our justification, not where we derive it. Our vocations were never intended nor designed by God to provide us the dignity and the satisfaction that we seek. That turnip will never give blood, no matter how hard and exhaustively we squeeze. 
So we need to shift weight. We need to shift weight off of ourselves and off of our vocations and onto Christ and all that He is for us. We need to repent because seeking justification in our vocation when we already have it, when it's already been provided for us in Christ, be real straightforward with you, that's an affront to God. That's a, so, so we need to, need to see that clearly and repent. But we need to repent because it would also be good. It would be so refreshing to us. The exhaustion of serving an endlessly demanding, never paying off master would be over. Be over. Now, are you not a Christian? Are you tired and exhausted from serving a master like your job? Like an identity that you find in your vocation? Then Jesus says, you qualify. You qualify to come to him and experience this royal dignity, this perfect integrity, to be somebody in Christ. You qualify. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You qualify. Come to him. A Christian, do you want to be good and effective in your vocation? Then ironically, look up from your vocation. Look to Christ. Look to the sovereign God, the lover of your soul. The only way to find freedom, to no longer live as a mercenary, giving only to get, is to look up, as Paul said, to set your mind on things above, to seek the things that are in heaven. Freedom to use our vocations to love God by loving others. And I think the byproduct, the byproduct will be, I think you'll actually be better at your vocation be better at it actually not because you were setting out to but you'll be freed freed to do what you were actually called there to do to love the world now you're actually empowered to do it by looking to Christ now to truly love the world one must give to the world what is truly valuable that's God and that's why we've been made priests to give the world God by proclaiming his excellencies out there. We don't, we don't wait for the world to come in here for a visit and check out God. That's not the map. We are a priesthood that gains grace and power within the church in order that we would spin out of the church out there to image him out there, to proclaim him out there where the world is. So where are God's excellencies most clearly seen? They are, of course, seen in the face of Christ. So now our priestly vocation overlays with our earthly vocation. God gives us vocations to love the world, to love the world by picturing him, imaging him, proclaiming him out there in a particular place, in a particular time, in front of particular people. He's called you to that. So let's consider how God does this. And this is the second point. God vividly displays Christ to the world. God vividly displays Christ to the world through us in our vocation. God vividly displays Christ to the world through us in our vocation. This is the important part. By our hope in the midst of opposition. Opposition. 
by our hope in the midst of opposition. You would think that Peter, right after the phrase, proclaiming his excellencies, would then begin talking about talking about him, speaking about him. And he will eventually in chapter 3, verse 15. He will get there. But until then, beginning in verses 11 and 12, he talks about our lifestyle, our conduct, good deeds. Here's Peter's logic. That we would live pure and honorable lives full of good deeds. And when others see our lifestyle and our conduct and our good deeds, that they would see something. That's, the, that's what the, the grammar of the original is getting at. That, that seeing, they would see something. They would, they would see something in the lifestyle and the conduct and the good deeds. And you say, well, yeah, of course, they just see, they see Jesus. Yeah, uh, Not so fast. There's something here that many of us miss. There's something there that would cause them to see and that would cause them, because they, because they perceived something, that at some point in the future, what Peter calls the day of visitation, we'll see what that is in a minute, the day of visitation, what they see would cause them at that point in the future to no longer reject God, but glorify God, to be happy about God instead of angry, rejecting God. And that something, I believe, is hope. The hope that drives that lifestyle, that conduct, those good deeds. I get this from chapter 3, verse 15, that we should always treasure Christ above all things, which then positions us to answer anyone who asks us, Peter says, for the reason for our hope. So it's, it's actually hope that people see that is driving our lifestyle and our actions and our good deeds. And when they see that hope, then that, that, that hope is, is what becomes alien and strange and causes them to ask for an answer from whence it comes. What is the reason then for the hope? Hope becomes this beam of light that traces a person back to its, the thing that it is resting on, the thing that it is treasuring. That's the point of hope in the world, that we would display hope and then others would see that hope and that they would trace that beam of light from the hope to the thing that it is resting on, Christ. <clears throat> so God images Christ to the world through our vocations in front of real people out in the world by empowering us to live out a lifestyle and conduct and deeds that are driven by hope so that people would see the hope and they would trace it back to its source, back to Christ. This is how Jesus is imaged through you in your vocation, through a lifestyle and conduct and deeds driven by hope, hope in Christ. Okay, but how does God make the hope pop? How does he make it seen, visible. He sets it deliberately, sovereignly, he chooses to set your hope against the backdrop, the context 
in a context of opposition. He decides to do that. God uses opposition to make your hope seen. Like a, like a black backdrop that, that then when you put a white snowball in front of it, makes the snowball visible. Whereas if it were, for instance, in the middle of a blizzard, you wouldn't be able to see it. If everything was snow, you can't see the snowball. But God sets the snowball, our hope, against this black backdrop of opposition to make it pop, to make it seen, to make it visible. Sometimes opposition will simply take the form of a sin-cursed world. Just, you know, the, the difficulty and the futility of just doing work in a world where work has been cursed. You do, you do work and work and work and work and you launch the product and it fails. Just normal, frustrating, exhausting futility. Sometimes opposition will look like that. But sometimes opposition will be more personal. And I know I don't have to tell many of you this. You're in a marriage to an unbelieving spouse who slyly mocks your faith. A rival firm slanders you to your customers. Your cubicle mate stirs up the boss against you because they assume that you hate them. They assume that you hate them because they believe that uh, you are filled with hatred against their lifestyle. A friend that you sought to help and pray for turns against you and maligns you in your help and even calls it evil to others. Against this black backdrop, Pure conduct and good deeds, they shine. They shine. Because we humans, we normally respond to darkness with darkness, to mocking with more mocking, to slander with even more slander, to the difficulty and futility of work with anxiety and frustration and even even hatred, hatred of others. Remember a story about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, who, when a particular product failed, took the product team into a big auditorium and just railed, railed at them, and at one point said, you should hate each other for this. You should hate each other. And that's what we do. That's us. That's how we normally respond. To maligning and maneuvering with maligning and defensive maneuvering. Not pure, not honorable, not good. But when slander is met with silent purity and alien dignity that seems to come from another place, when called evil, one responds by doing that person's sincere good. Well, that's odd. That's weird. It demands an answer. That's why Peter commands us, chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope. Hope is not a feeling that we wait for. It is a decision. It is something that we do. We set our hope. We direct it. We tell it where to go and what to rest on. Did you know that? Forget the Disney definition, the Hollywood definition of hope. We set our hope. But we gain power to set our hope by looking back, 
by drawing from the vast well of love for us poured out for us on the cross. The proof, the proof that we can tell ourselves that we are right to set our hope not on what is here in front of me, but on Christ who is to return, on the world that he will bring. The reason why I can tell myself, Jed, you are right to do that is, is back at the cross. I look back to the cross and, and his first coming and what he brought to me and what he showed me in his love at his first coming to gain power to set my hope in his next coming. It's the only way to do it. <clears throat> so, this, I don't know about, no, I, I do know about you because I know about me. This is labor. This is, is, I don't wake up in the morning just doing this. No, I wake up in the morning feeling like I'm in a hole and the dirt and the hole is going to just fall in on me and all the dirt is just all the cares of this life that, I, that I'm so prone to think about. I don't, I don't automatically do this. I got to work at this. Every day, and I, I'm sure that's the same for you. This is, not a, this is not a free and easy thing. This is a daily, morning by morning, night by night, labor in the word, picking up his promises that, that point me forward and looking back to the cross. There's no other way. There's no other way to set our hope forward on the grace that Christ will bring us. And I gotta say, it's hard because we're so wealthy, I think. I think that's a big reason. We're just so, I mean, in this whole country and Utah, we're, we're so wealthy. We're so wealthy. So it's, it's just the, the, the wealthier a person is, the harder it is to see by faith and not by sight. I think, I think that's a big part of it. It's just all of us. Um, we're such a wealthy people. So it's hard. It, it's hard to, to set our hope on the world to come, but we must. So we fix, we fix our mind on the hope, on hope of that world that is surely coming, and the content of that world. And then, then you compare it. Then we compare that world to this one. What that world brings to me and what it will bring to me compared to what this world offers me, and what this world has given me. And how this world is paid off. John, John Calvin once said a quote that has really stuck with me. He said, has this world been so good to you that you would leave it with regret? If we would do this, th th there would be a right, holy kind of, um, despising is too strong of the word. I'm not sure what word I'm looking for here. But a, a despising of this world that would free us. That would free us right here and now. To be freed from this world, living for that one, hoping, leaning, putting all of our weight on that world to come. If we would do this, if we would do this, then we would gain freedom from sinful passions. Sinful passions just, just erupt in, the, in the, the maelstrom of the workplace or whatever happens in our, in our vocations. Freed from sinful passions that, that distract people from seeing our hope in Christ. But when those, are, when those are cleared away, when, when the world has nothing on you, when the world has, has nothing of real value to you compared to the, the world to come, then there's nothing for sinful passions to, to hook onto here, to grab onto. <clears throat> yeah. 
And, and then, then you're free. Then you're free to live in honor and dignity. Honor and, and quiet royal dignity right there in that situation. Right there. To live in honor, not in malice or revenge. You're free. You're free. You're free when the world can't take anything away from you of any true eternal value. You're free. You're free. The world ain't got anything on you. You're free. You're free to respond with good deeds. We're free because we're looking to the treasure that is to come. We're free to then love our boss, love our coworker, love our spouse, even while being called evil. Because our hope is not set here, it is still yet to come. So again, many questions. If you're married and being physically abused, for instance, leave yesterday. Talk to the elders. Gain the collective wisdom of the priesthood. Many questions. But don't let the exceptions define your policy. Our policy is this, to image Jesus who, verse 21, suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, just like your boss, just like your spouse, just like that coworker, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Your hope not only images him, but it proclaims him right there in that home, that office, whatever situation you are in. Proclaims him to be to be a treasure worth dying for. Your place in the world was given to you to show the world that Christ is worth more than all the world. Do you see? Your place in the world was given to you to show the world that Christ is worth more than all the world. He sets that against the backdrop of opposition to make it seen, to make that visible. When you walk this path, you look like Jesus. You look like Jesus. You show, you image, you proclaim God. You proclaim most vividly His excellencies in the face of Jesus. And then we hope and we pray. We pray that God will visit the people who see him. This day of visitation that Peter talks about is not the end of all things, but a day or a season in this person's life when God visits them, perhaps with hardship, perhaps with some kind of surprise. could be a million things. But whatever it is, it is something that awakens and sobers them. And whatever it is, they will have been ready for it. They will have been 
prepared for it. Why? Because previously they saw him in you. They saw the hope and they were awakened. And then perhaps you, perhaps I ask you the reason for the hope that is within you, but perhaps it is long, a long time after and someone else comes and speaks the gospel to them. They will be prepared. They will be ready. God will have used you. God will have worn you as his mask for the most amazing work that he ever does in all of history, the miracle of saving another human soul. He will have pushed infinite good through you. This is not easy. This is, it's, it's more than difficult to do this. It's impossible on, a, on our own power. Utterly impossible. Utterly impossible to image Christ. Therefore, we entrust ourselves to God, just like Jesus. We hope in God to do it, just like Jesus. Looking to God to shepherd and oversee us, just like Jesus. Until we come home. Until we come home. So let's pray. Let's pray asking him to do this. Father, we, we, we often do this. We're, we're right to do it. We often, when people go on a mission... Um, to another place to share the gospel. We bring them up here and we lay hands on them and we pray in front. And that's, that's good and right for us. And at the same time, I'm, I'm convinced that it would be good and right if it were physically possible for the elders right now to put their hands on every single person. It's not, but to put their hands on every single person here and to pray for your grace, your power, your power to come to us from the foot of the cross and to come to us right now and to fill us, to fill us by your Spirit with such power that we would hope, that we would have power to set our hope on the world to come. And that that truly setting our hope fully on what you bring us, Lord Jesus, on you, on your coming, that we would be so free from the world that we would be free to image you clearly to the world, that we would fulfill our mission. So I do pray that. I do pray that right now. I pray that you would do that. I pray as, as though I were commissioning everyone. I pray, would you please come with your spirit and so fill us with you. So fill us with you that we are even alien to ourselves. That we, we, we can't even believe what we're doing out there tomorrow in our vocation. We, we don't even recognize ourselves for the power working in us from you. Would you do this? Would you do this? I, I know you would delight to because you are such a generous God. And you, 
you love us. You love us so much because you love your own glory so much because your glory is so good for us. You are so good for us. So we pray. Do, do miracles. Do many, many miracles out there. Image Christ through us. Do that which we are completely incapable of doing, Father. And then you would get all the glory. You, the giver of all the power, all the grace, would get all the glory. And we would be filled with just unimaginable satisfaction in seeing you do this amazing thing. Would you? thank you that you are still in this business that you won't stop until the day that Jesus does return so we ask hoping in you in your name I pray amen thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.